0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along to Gateway. We're thrilled that you're with us this evening. Um, I've been doing a series and it's been interrupted for about three weeks through a series of um, um, personal circumstances, but I'm getting back to it this evening, and it's a series we've called The Challenge Of, and I've been talking about a series of challenges that face um, the church, that face disciples of Jesus, um, and and I do want to say as I start off this evening that obviously what I'm going to talk to you about tonight, and, and as I've talked to you in previous weeks, is build on a foundation or a supposition really that um, I'm... I'm Coming from the place of being a believer, and I'm speaking um, to believers. Now, you might be here this evening and you're not a believer, please don't feel excluded. It's just a supposition that I'm working from. It won't mean that you don't understand what I'm going to say. Uh, you just have to understand the position that I'm coming from, and I want to um, put that forward right out up front. In the series so far, we've considered the challenge of atheism, uh, the challenge of feminism, the challenge of pluralism, the challenge of scientism, and tonight I want to consider what might be the most difficult and controversial of them all so far. It's the challenge of the LGBTQI um, activists, okay? Um, It's not that this subject is any more difficult intellectually or any more difficult necessarily from a biblical perspective. It is just that it is presently, as most of you are aware, a storm center of opinion in our culture. And no matter what you say, you are damned if you do, damned if you don't, there are going to be people who will end up incredibly offended with what I'm about to say. On the one hand, you've got the PC ideologues who stand ready to pounce on every supposed violation of tolerance and bigotry as they define it. On the other end, there are the right-wing bigots, including, unfortunately, many Christians, who have decided that God and the Bible have consigned all LGBTQ persons to hell. So we're dealing with a wide spectrum of opinions, and there is such a wide spectrum of peoples and ideologies within the LGBT equation that it's quite impossible to address them all. For example, if I was just to take one of those letters, the L or the G or the T, and speak to it, It's incredibly difficult to cover the subject in a way that would be satisfying. And also, there's not just one way of thinking within those particular groups. There isn't just one gay voice or way of thinking, just as there isn't one transgender voice or way of thinking. There's not one black way of thinking. There's not one octogenarian way of thinking. People are people, and it's impossible to confine them within neat, bounded boxes and give them trendy labels, and pretending that everyone within a minority group is identical to the rest is a way of stereotyping and devaluing people. For example, I suspect that not all gay people would consider themselves to be ideological activists within that camp. So obviously to cover our topic this evening, I have to narrow it down. And what I've decided to do is to speak to the T part of the LGBTQ equation. So I want to talk to you about the transgender issue this evening. Now, let me say a word to those of you who might have been hoping that I would address perhaps the wider homosexual area or or topic. Um, I just want to say one thing to you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you would consider yourself a pro-gay activist, then you should take time to read a book entitled The Bible and Homosexual Practice by Robert Gagnon. If you're a follower of Jesus and you would align yourself with the anti-gay lobby, then you need to read a book entitled Single Gay Christian by Gregory Coles, a beautifully written book that I highly recommend. Enough seed. Okay. I wanna talk to you about transgender ideology that is sweeping like a tsunami over our culture. It wasn't that long ago that probably the majority of us here would never even have heard about transgender identity or politics. Yet within a relatively short space of time, it has become a cause claiming and receiving the mantle of a human or civil right, Several years ago, Bruce Jenner became the face of this movement for many. If you don't know Bruce Jenner, he was an Olympic champion, a model of masculinity and athleticism. However, believing himself to be a woman trapped inside a man's body, he underwent reassignment treatment and emerged as Caitlyn Jenner. And I'm sure many of you will have seen her on the now very famous cover of Vanity Fair magazine. Jenna has been named the woman of the year by Glamour magazine and has been awarded the Arthur Ashe Courage Award by ESPN. And Jenna had the effect of catapulting the transgender issue into the forefront of our culture years uh, of our culture wars. In the subsequent years, Hollywood of course has mainstreamed gender ideology. The Obama administration mandated it as a right in education, healthcare, housing, and the military. Big business has joined the stampede to join the crusade, so IBM, Apple, PayPal, Google, and Facebook have all thrown their considerably powerful might behind and in support of transgender ideology. I'm not a Facebook user, but apparently, somebody told me, Facebook offers 50 different gender options for its members. It has become one of the most fashionable social justice issues of our time. And the question I want to raise tonight is, how are we supposed to think about this as followers of Jesus? How do we respond to transgender ideology? Now, now, please note, I am talking about ideology and not persons. I am not talking about transgender individuals. I am talking about transgender politics, and ideology. Listen, when it comes to people, including transgendered people, we already have a model in how to think and act. We think and act about them or act toward them as Jesus would. Jesus loved people. All kinds of people. Life is about people, precious people made in the image of God. And transgendered persons deserve, like all others, to be treated with compassion, with kindness, and with respect. And I'd like to suggest to you it's sinful to despise and ridicule them or to disrespect them. To acknowledge the full dignity of transgendered persons means that we reject any mockery that would demean them. It might mean that we need to step in on occasions and defend them from bullies or abuse. It might mean that we need to speak up in their defense as persons, even if and when we may actually disagree with transgender ideology and politics. Now, I'd want to say, however, that love Kindness, respect, and value need not be mistaken for agreement or affirmation, and we can unhesitatingly give one without sacrificing our convictions on the others. A transgendered individual, not the ideology, but an individual should actually be more loved and be safer in a Bible-believing church than in any other place in the world. Transgendered people are real people, they are sons, they are daughters, they are brothers, they are sisters, they are church members, they are work colleagues, and of course, they may be you. Now, having laid that down as a foundation, I'm not looking at persons I want to consider, you with, uh, consider with you this evening ideology and see if we can perhaps bring some biblical thinking or at least what I hope might appear to you as sanctified common sense. I want to start by just giving you some basic facts about the transgender phenomenon. So what I want to do is ask and then seek to answer some simple questions. So first up, what is it? Well, transgendered individuals have, have what we have always called, up to this point at least, gender dysphoria. Now, gender dysphoria is a profound and debilitating sense of alienation from one's biological sex. So it's the feeling of being trapped in a body that is the opposite sex of the one that you feel you should actually be. Gender dysphoria appears to exist on a spectrum that ranges from mild at one end to severe at the other. Not all people who have feelings of or who experience gender dysphoria would necessarily identify as transgender. Many people who experience a degree of dysphoria don't allow it or refuse to allow it to determine how they perceive themselves. And so although they experience those feelings, they choose to live in alignment with their biological sex. Of course, there are others, for a variety of reasons, they choose to live out a transgender identity. Now, obviously, it's easier to master one's feelings and live aligned to one's biological sex if one finds oneself at the more mild end of that spectrum. What I am not saying here is that people choose those kinds of feelings. That's far too simplistic. And by the way, that's true too for many people who experience same-sex attraction. They really, in spite of what you sometimes hear in Christian circles, simply choose those feelings. So second question, how common is it Well, exact numbers are difficult to ascertain, but the best and most reliable studies suggest that around 0.005% of adult males struggle with gender dysphoria. That's about approximately one in between 10 and 13,000 people, all right? Now, it's slightly less common in females, about uh, 0.002%, so between... One in between 20 and 34,000 females struggle with gender dysphoria. So we're not talking about large numbers. These people or this ideology punches far, far above its weight in terms of its political clout. Uh, It's more common in males than females by a ratio of four to one. Another question, what causes it? Well, people make all kinds of bold causes about, uh, about, bold claims rather about the causes, mostly without a shred of scientific evidence. The best research is far from conclusive, and it seems to be related to a multiple of contributing factors, some combination of both nurture and nature. The reality is, we simply, at this point in time, don't know. And I would suggest to you that if you're in some kind of debate, that you beware of people who boldly claim uh, answers for this. And they might say at one end, it's biology, it's in the genes, and at the other end, they might say it's chosen and it's sinful. Both those two answers are way too simplistic. Another question, how is it or even should it be treated? When people have gender dysphoria, what, what, what treatment is available? Well, until relatively recently, people who struggled with gender dysphoria would have fallen into the domain of psychotherapy or psychiatry with regard possible treatment options. But more recently, activists would claim that any therapy other than affirming and supporting the person's inner gender identity amounts to devaluing that person. So chemical hormonal treatment seeking to realign the body with the gendered identity uh, is becoming the preferred pathway for many people who have this issue. So there can be cosmetic reassignment surgical procedures and that is becoming more and more common where the body is actually surgically altered to align itself with the patient's mental perception. So genitalia are surgically removed or altered, breasts enlarged or removed and so on so that the outer body conforms with the inner perception. Now, such surgery can affect the cosmetic outward appearance of the person. But the biological reality is that it cannot change the sex of that person. Actually, sexual organization begins with our DNA and with the development of the fetus in the womb. Sex differences manifest themselves in bodily systems and organs all the way down to the molecular level of the being. Our physical organization for one of two functions in reproduction shapes us organically from the very beginning of life at every level of our being. So cosmetically altering the outward um, genitalia does not change that deep inner molecular organization a man becoming a woman through reassignment, treatment or surgery is actually a biological impossibility. What they can become is a feminized man. A woman becoming a man through reassignment, treatment or surgery is a biological impossibility. What they can become is a a masculinized woman. That's, by the way, not an expression, in case you're worried, of bigotry or unkindness. That, that is just the, bioge- the biological scientific reality. By the way, while I'm on that topic, let me just say children who appear to be having feelings of gender dysphoria, the best studies show that between 80 and 90% of them, if left alone, will come to identify with their biological sex, as long as natural development is allowed to proceed. In other words, do nothing. You know, the present rush to reassign the sex of young children using puberty blockers and other medical means, I suspect will in future days be regarded as little short of child abuse. Question, is such treatment... Hormonal or surgical, effective for the patient's well being? Does it have the effect that these people hope that it would? Again, the largest, most vigorous academic study done in 2011 on the results of hormonal and surgical reassignment treatments found strong evidence for very poor psychological outcomes. It's, it's not widely known or reported, but there is an extraordinarily high rate of suicide attempts among people who identify as transgender. 41%, nearly half of transgendered people attempt suicide as compared with 4.6% of the general population. People who do transition, who go through the treatment, are still 19 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Issues of depression, psychosis, and suicide occur frequently, both before and after sex reassignment surgery. Now, these really poor outcomes cannot be entirely put down to hostile, bigoted people since they are reported even in cultures of, uh, uh, most accepting cultures of people who identify as transgender. Now, what I've just said are, for the most part, simple, undisputed facts about the transgender issue. Like I said to you before, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm not trying to be bigoted, that's just the reality of this situation. Now what I wanna do now is obviously a little more personal personal and therefore a little more controversial. As I say, what I've just told you is just simple facts, you can check it on the Mr. Google if you want, but that's just the reality. I'd like to comment on it a little more if I may. I suspect transgender ideology has been given a traction in our culture that would not have been possible at any other time in the history of the world. We, We live in the West in a culture characterized by what we call radical individualism. So what an individual wills or wants in our culture is regarded as the highest good. And so to suggest that such wills or such wants might be wrong or perhaps hurtful is to be considered intolerant or bigoted. We have been powerfully shaped by cultural forces that tell us live and let live, that we need to be tolerant of people who are different from us, no matter what they believe or practice. So long as no one else is being heard in the process, um, they should be affirmed, and that what they choose actually is right for them. Now, as I say, I'm all for tolerance, Uh, You know, I believe people as individuals should be treated with kindness and respect. The problem with this kind of thinking, and we looked at it when we talked about the problem of pluralism as an ideology, the downside of it is when we go down that pathway, we actually have no basis for a thing called truth. If everything is true, then effectively nothing is true, and truth becomes a meaningless and incoherent concept. Some of you may have seen this, but there's a a, a YouTube clip that's gone viral. It was done in 2016 where a young Caucasian man in his 30s goes out onto a university campus and interviews passing students. And his interviews demonstrate in an amusing manner the absolute absurdity of individual perceptions as being the only reliable basis for establishing what's real and true. So he went out onto the campus uh, and, and he asked a variety of students how they would respond if he told them he was a woman. And the responses were fairly common and they went like, well, good for you. I don't have a problem with that. Next he asked them, how would you respond if I said to you I was Chinese? Well, he's obviously Caucasian, so the responses were, well, I might be a little surprised, but I would say good for you. Hmm, said one. I'd have some questions, but then maybe you have some Chinese ancestry. Next question, how would you feel if I claimed to be seven years old? Well, a little more hesitancy in the responses this time, as would be predictable, I guess. One said, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I wouldn't go out of my way to tell you that you're wrong. Another says, if you feel seven at heart, so be it, good for you. Another said, if first grade is where you feel mentally, then there are communities that would accept you for that. (laughs) They weren't trying to be funny, okay? Another one says, so long as you're not hurting anyone else, classic, then joining first grade would be an okay thing for me. Then the interviewer asks the students, what would you say if I said I was six foot five inches tall? He was actually five foot five. Now, one bold and obviously very bigoted student said, I would question that. And he said, why? And the student said, because you're not. (laughs) Back to the PC script. If you truly think you're six foot five, then I think that's fine. The interviewer then asked, well, would you tell me if you thought I was wrong? No, said one, I'd not be willing to tell you that you were wrong. Another one said, it's not my place as a human being to tell you that you are wrong. So the interviewer says, so that I can be a Chinese woman. Sure. I can be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes, I would be open to that. Listen, if you want proof of the imbecility of our our culture, look no further. We have become so open-minded, our brains have dropped out. Such thinking inevitably leads to total absurdity. Do we really believe that sheer say-so makes it so? Well, it seems so if this survey is in any way representative. Let me just continue down this line of thinking for a moment by asking you a few more questions. Do we really believe or could we accept that our subjective perception determines our age? could an 18-year-old go into uh, to social welfare and ask that they could sign up and receive a beneficiary's p- p- pension because I feel like I'm 65? <laughs> How do you think that would go down? What about a grown man who recently placed an advertisement in the paper seeking a nursemaid because he really felt that he was only four? True story. I suspect he wanted the nursemaid to actually look like the nanny, maybe minus the accent, but that's probably the darkness of my own heart. What about the man who raped a four-year-old girl and in his defense said that he only felt like he was four years old and he was just doing what four-year-olds do? Starts to get serious, doesn't it? Does my individual perception determine my height? Could I roll up to an NBA franchise and say, I'm actually seven foot nine. I would like a place on your playing roster. (laughs) Presuming I could play basketball, I guess. What about my personal perception, my individual perception determining my racial profile? True story. Maybe you've heard of Rachel Dolzeel, who identifies as what she calls trans black, although she's obviously Caucasian. She became president of the Spokane chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People until somebody finally had the courage to say, hey, the Empress got no clothes. This woman is Caucasian. She's not black. Um, by the way, in her defense, she claimed the idea of race is a lie. It is nothing but a social construction. Interesting argument. And we will come back to that. Did you know that there are people who identify as trans-abled? These are able-bodied people who believe that they're a disabled person trapped in a fully functioning body. It's not funny. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't, this isn't these, are, these are real people, sons, daughters, so on. They have, often sought surgical solutions to their perceived problems and have been known to amputate healthy limbs or to seek to sever their spinal cord so that they can become what they perceive themselves to be. Here's one that bends your head. What about people who claim to be trans species? Luis Pardon has spent over $25,000 to transform himself into an elf. He has undergone numerous surgical procedures, including liposuction, jaw and nose jobs, an operation to change his eye colours—a color, surgery to make himself taller, the removal of ribs to make himself thinner. And he says this, I consider myself trans species in the same way transgendered people feel. I need to become how I feel inside. I don't expect people to understand that, but I ask that they respect it. What would you say to somebody who felt so worthless that they felt it would be better to end their life? Would you be stupid enough or perhaps even wicked enough to say to them that since that is your perception, that perception should be affirmed and you should be assisted to act out what your head and heart is saying? By the way, if you did under our law as it presently stands, you'd be criminally culpable. What about the teenage boy or the teenage girl who, claim, who, who suffers with um, anorexia nervosa, who claim that they are fat and they need to diet, or they are fat and they need liposuction? You know, we don't affirm their perceptions, even though they are held with profound sincerity by the sufferer. I had a young lady come to me one time and she was close to death. She suffered from anorexia nervosa and had a desperation appearance and said, you better talk to the pastor. Well, look, I was out of my depth completely. And um, and, and I said, she, she's talked about how fat she was and I'm thinking, this is just not, not compute. She's, she's dying. And I, I gave her a piece of paper and I said, please, would you draw me, just stick figure, but your perception of how you look. And she drew this figure with this, grossly extended stomach and I'm, think, uh, and I'm just beside myself. I said, do you actually you, you think that you look like that? She said, absolutely. That is how I look. Sincerely held the perception that she was grossly obese. We don't affirm those perceptions There's no way in God's wide world I'm going to say to her, okay, sweetheart, since that's the way you feel, let's arrange liposuction for you because I need to affirm the way you feel on the inside. What we do is we strive to correct and treat the false problematic nature of the assumption and try and resolve the psychological conflict that provoked it. Dr. Paul McHugh, who's the professor of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, goes to the heart of where these questions are taking us. He says, the disordered assumption of those who identify as the opposite sex is familiar to the faulty assumption of those who suffer from anorexia nervosa, who believe themselves to be overweight when, an act, when, when they are, in fact, dangerously thin. Now, look, I've thought long and hard about this talk to you tonight. I realize that I run the risk of being called a transphobic bigot. But I would suggest to you that the challenge for the transgender activist, for transgender ideology, is to present to us a cogent argument as to why transgender beliefs and perceptions determine reality any more than these other cases do. And the burden of proof lies with them. A question that I have never even seen entertained, let alone answered, is why is it acceptable, desirable, and even supposedly heroic to surgically and or chemically alter the body to fit, with the perception of the mind, and yet for somebody to suggest that the mind might possibly be altered to fit with the body, that's shouted down as transphobic, hateful, bigoted, discriminatory, and even criminal. How is that? In the cases that I've highlighted tonight, I suspect that we would want to say, or at the very least think, even if we don't have the courage to say it, that a person's belief that they are something or someone that they are clearly not is at best confused thinking and at worst delusional thinking. Concerning my elven friend, if he wants to identify as an elf, personally, I'm liable to feel some compassion for him and to say, you know, live and, and let live. But... If he then goes on to demand that I affirm what he claims is actually true and that perhaps I spend thousands of dollars altering my building's architecture to allow for elven bathrooms to be built, then I might balk at and question his grip on reality. You see, transgender ideology is not simply about allowing citizens who identify as transgender to live as they choose in peace among us. An idea, by the way, that I could actually affirm. However, it's not that. It is, in fact, about coercing the rest of us to agree and encourage their perceptions of reality and for us to make whatever personal and social adjustments that need to be made be made in order to enable them to live in that lifestyle in my view, for what it's worth, and it's probably not worth a great deal. In our desire to honor and affirm people, which I am completely committed to, I believe we should do, I believe we've trampled common sense in the political correct madness, and we have demanded that our society cooperate and affirm mental illness rather than trying to study it, cure it, and ultimately prevent it. You said, whoa, that's pretty strong. Yeah, maybe. And I realize that most of us don't say these things because we're simply frightened of what other people might say and that we might appear phenomenally bigoted, narrow minded individuals. But we've thrown common sense clean out the window. Not only have we thrown common sense clean out the window, I think as followers of Jesus, we are running in the face of what biblical thinking we might apply to this difficulty. Listen, biblically speaking, maleness and femaleness are not artificial social constructs. Remember Rachel Dolzell? Race is a lie, it's a social construct. It's the exact argument that transgender ideology uses. Sex is a lie, it's a social construct. Listen, biblically, it's very clear that gender is not a social construct, it's a creational category. Male and female created he them. The biblical differences between men and women reflect the creative intention of beings made in the image of God. Now, listen, you might accuse me of being a little simple, but but to me, it's not that complicated. A person's sex is readily identifiable. The very first thing we say when the child comes out of the mother's womb is, it's a boy, it's a girl. Sex is not socially assigned, it is biologically recognised. Intuitively and historically, we've always connected sex and gender. And I would like to say at this point, you know, as we as we often say in marriage ceremonies, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder these things are joined. It's ironic to me that in a day when we are largely embracing radical transgender politics and ideology and are buying into the far-reaching idea that sex is a lie and merely socially constructed, that on the other hand, we are seeing the rise of these things that we call gender reveal parties. Talk about opposites. Opposites. From what I understand, I've never been to one, but they are creative, elaborate, and often very expensive ways of saying, it's a boy, it's a girl. Look, intuitively, we understand that. And I'd like to suggest to you that our practices betray us while we might do the politically correct speech deep inside, we understand. Sex is readily identifiable that gender and sex intuitively and historically are inextricably joined. There's another thing. The idea that there can be an inherent tension or a complete separation between your true inner self and your outer body that you inhabit is not a biblical idea. It is an ancient Gnostic idea. It developed out of ancient Greek philosophy that believed and taught that our bodies serve only to imprison our human spirits. So spirit and matter were by the Greeks set in opposition. Spirit was good, matter and body was evil. And the body was seen as less than who we really are and so course could be treated any way you like. Shape, change to match how you really feel internally. That is Greek thinking. It is not Hebrew thinking. It is not Bible thinking. In biblical thinking, in Hebrew thinking, the human person is a psychophysical unity. It's not that just you have a body, but in biblical thinking, you are a body. You are an embodied soul, or if you like, an incarnated spirit, and your identity is as much the result of the possession of the body that you have as it is the possession of a spirit. In Hebrew thinking, no body equals nobody. Okay? You, you, you aren't just a spirit inhabiting a body. You are a psychophysical reality that has a, 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 an embodied soul. And you take away the body. You haven't got anything. The body doesn't shackle the spirit. It provides the spirit with an organ of expression and action. That's why, by the way, the great hope of the Hebrew Scriptures is not the forsaking of the body and being transported off into some bodily, uh, uh, bodiless existence, some ethereal outer space location. If you're an ancient Greek called the Elysian Fields, if you're a modern-day Christian called Heaven, The great hope of the Hebrew scriptures is not going to heaven. The great hope of the Hebrew scriptures is the resurrection of the body in a very new and very material creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It's the resurrection of the body. From the biblical perspective, the idea that your inner spirit might not be correctly aligned to your outer body is inconceivable, It would be incoherent. So we need to come to grips, if we are followers of Jesus, with what the Bible says about this phenomenon that is literally sweeping our culture. It's been highlighted, of course, particularly um, for many of us as we've watched the Commonwealth Games and we watched Laurel Hubbard. Kate Weatherly, maybe some of you, you don't know Kate Weatherly. She is uh, she just undergone a transition. She, he was uh, a, an average New Zealand male mountain bike rider, made the transition and, and is now um, cleaning out the women's division in mountain bike riding in New Zealand. Th- this has been thrust front and centre and as believers, we've got to have some kind of way of thinking about this. We can't just simply hide our heads. I would want to say once again, people have to be loved, respected, um, treated with kindness. Under no circumstances do you as a believer have license to mock anybody, to, to put down people in, in the transgendered world. Um, arena, we, we, can't, we can't do those things, that, that for me is a given. However, I think that kind of respect can be given in an unhesitating manner without an agreement in terms of their views. And when it comes to transgender ideology and politics at the very real risk of being demonized as being hateful and transphobic, I would want to go on record of say, as saying the idea of sex change is, A, physically impossible. It is biologically impossible. You can do the cosmetic alterations, but you cannot change the, redu- the, the organisation of, uh, of the organism which is determined by DNA and, 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 and the, right down to the molecular level in the fetus. It's physically impossible. It's psychosocially unhelpful. It's philosophically misguided. It's biblically aberrant. If you don't know what that means, it just simply means it's in error. I'm done. I've got a car out there running. And I will be on holiday probably for six or eight weeks, depending on the number of emails and abusive calls I get. I I, I agonize over topics like this. Because as a Christian, I'm called to love people. I would want to say, by the way, um, separate topic, but also very much news. Not long before I came out this evening, I flicked through the news on my um, computer and I was on TV3's News Hub and I see two articles beside one another. Laurel Hubbard is a true Kiwi hero and right next to that, Israel Folau should be sacked for his homophobic responses to gay people. This is front and center. I would want to say, however, you know, about, about Izzy Folau. I, I mean, I don't know him personally. He seems to me to be a really godly young man that loves the Lord. But I, I don't know who's advising uh, Izzy, but I, I, they should get alongside him and say, hey, Izzy, never ever is sexual orientation the, the, the line between heaven and hell. I'm sorry, but it's just not. The line between heaven and hell is our either acceptance of or rejection of Jesus Christ. That's what makes heaven and hell. And, um, and sometimes from Donald Trump down, some people should just take away their phones. <laughs> just take them away. These guys are... Tr- <laughs> anyway, I better stop or someone will be taking away my phone. Listening, we hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.